And now, back to our conversation with Brenda on Tesserae. Ooh, that was pretty good, actually. Uh, I feel like basically every single TV drama from the 90s and early 2000s, previously on Tesserae. Uh, what does it mean to be a sanctuary church? Hmm. Um, what, what is that, <laughs> whether practically, I think I'm interested also like in, in the uh, like in the practicality of it, like what does it mean to be one? How does one become one? Uh, yeah, what, what, what does that entail? That's a good question. And we asked John Fleck that question. Um, and basically, it's a church who's willing to hold someone in sanctuary if they receive a deportation notice. And so the famous example is Rosa Robles, who was um, pulled over. Have you heard of Rosa? Yeah, yeah, she was pulled over in Arizona for a minor, minor infection and um, was then um, taken to, I believe it's Tucson Presbyterian Church, where John Fife was the pastor of, and she was held there for over 400, and day, 400 days. And I remember I was in with the U.S.-Mexico border during that time, and it was just, my eyes were just, I, I was so encouraged by the response of the church. You had signs everywhere. People wrote so many letters. Petitions were signed. The, the immigration lawyer was phenomenal. And they really advocated for Rosa to stay, and she was able to stay. Hmm. And so I think it's a willingness from this church to be a sanctuary for those who are deported. It really doesn't take much. It's just basically calling yourself, and I don't believe it is a legal process. I can definitely double check. Um, but it's being willing to serve as a home for someone who is deported because immigration officials aren't allowed to enter the church if it is a sanctuary church, and they cannot deport the person. Um, so it's very powerful, and it's definitely the church stepping in um, it's definitely, I think this is where it can get very political and people who have very different political views can be against it. And so part of my research for my thesis or my graduate work was asking John Fife about his process and how he, how did he convince um, his church to say yes? And he said it was unanimous and people were so on board because they, again, their interactions with migrants that were um, coming from, uh, from Central America. And so, so basically long um to make the answer short is your willingness to be part of that church and then um, reach out to either John Fife or myself and we can do more research together if that's something that you do want to explore. Um, and I think especially if someone is in an area where there are undocumented immigrants, it just is a very powerful way to be the hands and feet of a church. And I know there was just so much fear, especially in the last political administration. Um, and so I definitely see a lot of value in that. All right. So I'm going to ask the big question then, because, you know, especially for those of our listeners, maybe who are more uh, politically conservative, what do you do with Romans 13 if uh, an individual is being deported and that's the law of the land? And so how do you reconcile a church um, harboring uh, an, an immigrant who, you know, is legally supposed to be removed from the country? Yeah. The famous Roman 13th question that I get often, it's a great yep. question. And I really appreciate Dr. Danny Carroll's response in his book, Bibles and Borders. Um, so I really recommend that book if someone really is grappling with that question. Um, but to answer your question, I, I want to say that justice is not synonymous to, um, to legality. Legality is not synonymous to justice. And I think we've had so many policies in the United States that just are godly. I mean, look at our history. I mean, slavery, right? That was legal. And so right, I know it's right. a very common argument that people use, and I stand by that um, because we have very, very broken immigration policies. I've witnessed them. I work with international students and have seen some just 
inhumane immigration policies that have caused my students so much stress and stress on me in my office and on other international educators. And so I then advocate on a political level. I call my representatives and and I say, hey, these are my students who are really suffering. There was a policy that happened um, last year in the middle of COVID that basically stated that international students had to leave the country if their school wasn't in person. Yep. And thankfully, Moody was going to be um, a hybrid. And so they're able to stay. Um, and the reality is the world, we were going through a global pandemic. Borders were closed. Students couldn't go back to their countries. And so what are they going to do? They're going to be in the U.S. accruing unlawful presence, which will then make it harder for them to ever leave the country and come back in. They're basically going to be undocumented. And that was and I was just I, I, I know our immigration system and I know it's been unjust. I get that. But I think when you see it over and over again, it's so discouraging and frustrating. And so I think looking at the law and understanding that it is broken and we need people to advocate against that. And so that's my argument against the Romans 13, you know, is to understand that just because there's a law in place doesn't mean that it's good and that God approves of that. Um, and so my response is to challenge that law, advocate against that law and be active. Um, and also to look at the context of Romans 13, you know, and this is something that um, is in the book, The Bibles and Borders, and looking at Romans 12 and the first scriptures, um, do not conform to the image of the world, right? But renew your mind. Um, I totally summarize that, but basically is uh, looking at not being like the world and, and, you know, not letting our policies be inspired by fear or created by fear, but looking at them from an objective point of view or, you know, keeping the foreigner in mind. Um, and if you look at it from a political standpoint, if you have a lower developed nation next to um, nation that's more developed economically. Migration is bound to happen. I mean, those are the laws of migration. If I had a family that I had to feed, I would totally jump over that wall. I would mm -hmm. do anything in my power to save them. And I guarantee you, if you, if you had a family, you'd probably do the same thing too. And yeah. so I think naturally immigration is going to happen. And if you look at borders worldwide, and if there's typically a wall, it, it talks about, it, it shows the relationship between those two neighboring countries. But we don't have a wall between Canada and Mexico, or Canada and the United States. So what does that tell us about, <laughs> about our country, right? And so, and so, yeah, I think that Romans 13 is a very valid question and something that we definitely have to explore. And someone won't completely change your, their minds because of one answer. I think it's this kind of ongoing process of exploring scripture, exploring immigration policy, and having those hard conversations. And Steve, we haven't really unpacked this dynamic a whole lot, but I, I we did talk um, a couple months back about Christian nationalism, and I, I I wonder if the Romans thirteen argument, I mean, because it's true, right? It's in the Bible. We have to submit to governments, but like I, I wonder if if the argument, as it's often used, it assumes the righteousness of current legislation of current law, right? Like. Um, I mean, we're Americans, right? We, we are founded on the presumption of an unjust system. And so we, we uh, engaged in revolution because we said enough of this. Um, and yet oftentimes when Romans 13 gets utilized, it assumes this law is just, this law is fair, um, it is good. And, and so I think, Brenda, that's a, an important point. Um, I think a lot of us are ignorant about how immigration actually works, how um, the, the inner workings of it. And, um, 
hearing, you know, this is maybe where part of that, uh, the experience piece comes in. So, um, critically is, is hearing the stories about how it actually functions about how the laws actually work. It, it really does reveal like, okay, there, there's serious problems here. And, mm-hmm. um, and so what does it mean for us to actually pursue justice, to actually pursue righteousness as people who have a voice, right? And so it's, um, that's a helpful, helpful way of framing it. I, I appreciate that. I also, I, I also appreciate that. And I also would be up for, for, for witnessing like that, uh, sort of healthy, like healthy back and forth and dialogue about it. Right. Uh, as I feel the moment you said Romans 13, I'm like, we both know like, okay, we know where you're going here. And it's so helpful because we should be able to ask questions about like, what does the Bible say about this? Or the Bible says this, what are we supposed to make of this without, uh, resorting to, um, the manipulation of a text, you know? Um, I think maybe right. in season one, I don't know if we, if, uh, if Onesimus came up in season one, but I don't think, you so. know, like that, that is like a significant, almost like proof text for saying like why slaves ought to be faithful to their masters in, in slavery in the U S right. It's like Paul told Onesimus to go back. Um, and <laughs> now I'm like, what? Like, no, come on. <laughs> no, 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 no. And I don't even feel inspired to like go into detail as to why no at this point. I'm like, no, you know. So I think I think that's what happens too, is that we don't often see a very healthy back and forth where you're listening to understand a different perspective and you're mm-hmm. also open to being wrong. Because unfortunately, that's not the power of debate. The power of debate does not like have convincing like at the end of it, usually. I, I don't feel. I feel like it's usually, oh, well, that was a back and forth debate and I lost. I am now more entrenched in my argument than ever. Like I might have gotten beat, but I don't I don't want to believe I don't want to hold that our bias sort of comes out as opposed to saying that I would submit to this. If this was saying something that would like convict my position and bring me to something different then I would I would submit to that, you know. Um, and so asking those questions with like through a lens of justice and injustice seems really helpful, you know, because you're right. Mm-hmm. Like we have to a lot of things have been legal, you know, <laughs> and that didn't necessarily make them just so uh, but I don't want to. I also don't want to just make things convenient and be like, okay, well, I explained it away, so it's no problem. I, I, I want to feel those those harder pieces. I think that's part of the Christian walk. If we're going to look at the word, is like, is it just a convenient rubric, or is it like the actual rubric for our life, for how we ought to live, and things like that? Um, we but, need like a, a deep collective ethical processing. Like we yeah. need to be able to weigh and evaluate with all of its complexity. Is this legislation this policy ethical is it righteous and we we i don't think we far too often we don't do that because i think it's what you're describing right steve is this idea of like going back and forth as the church and and really um and, and frankly like um if the the white evangelical church had done that in uh antebellum times if it had done that through jim crow like we would be in a different place Mm-hmm. Um, but, but instead we ended up, um, believing a lot of dumb stuff that hurt a lot of people. <laughs> and so yeah. what does it look like for the church to actually take the bull by the horns to, uh, hold all things up as, as you said, <laughs> Brenda, that Romans 12 bit, right? Like don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, are we actually renewing our minds um, and our policies and our assumptions about culture and our beliefs about the other and, you know, on and on and on, according to the ethic of scripture. Um, 
and, and it is, it's not an easy process and it's probably going to be a really messy one, but my goodness, we need it. And you kind of touched on this already. There's that collective nature, which I definitely resonate with from a black church experience as well. But I think I want to ask just about distinctives of the Latina church in the U S from your perspective, what are contributions? What are, cha- what are, what are challenges? It's obviously not a monolith, but different things that could help us peer into the experience. Yeah, I think the Latino church is very diverse. Uh, it can include so many different uh, nationalities, ethnicities, and, and I think also location-wise, depending on where you are, it will make a very big difference. So a church here, that's a Latino church in Chicago, very different from my church experience in West Michigan. Um, and so I think there are definitely some common struggles, right? A lot of people, Latinos facing discrimination and racism, um, kind of if it, is an, if it is an immigrant church, maybe struggling um, financially. If there are a lot of undocumented people, then immigration is obviously extremely difficult because you're living in this constant fear of, you know, am I going to get deported? And so I think the obstacles, there are a lot of challenges definitely in um, and just like there are challenges, there are also so many incredible blessings. And that main one being that collective culture that I talked about, this warmth. And, you know, if they do speak some English, you have Spanglish and kind of biculturalism. It's just so fun. And people are mm-hmm. so welcoming. They treat you like family. And I totally felt that in the Latino church that I was at in Michigan, especially the church when I was in Mexico, I was living there. Um, early 20s and didn't have a family there and so they were just so kind it would have me over for lunch and i never felt alone because there was just again this focus on the community and selflessness and so i think that's probably the main thing that stood out to me was just this idea of family and everyone's family even if you don't even if you aren't related by blood um, I feel like I hear that from friends from if they like visit a black church, but also just like in the the culture and the church really overlap in a really interesting, really interesting way that that I really enjoy. When I was a sophomore in college, um, I had a lot of friends who were, we were part of this one organization, this like leadership organization, and almost all of them were also in Latino Alliance. I started going to Latino Alliance and sometimes they would come to our black student union meetings. And so, you know, we kind of had this understanding, like you come to our stuff, we come to your stuff, you know, and the the familial sort of piece there was was seamless, you know, even. And, and so that allowed the avenue for like harder conversations to take place and um, ways to get past misunderstandings and breaking down of stereotypes. And yes, I was taking I remember taking Spanish at the time and they made fun of my Spanish like all the time because the Spanish that I was taking in class was not like almost all of them were Mexican-American and no, that was not the type of Spanish that they had grown up with. And they let me know. But I remember that. Yeah, I do remember that. I do reflect on that fondly in terms of just like the the comfort level that I, I don't think I had experienced outside of the black culture before then. Let's transition to working with international students. So you mentioned a little bit about just the work that, that you get to do at Moody, and it's such important work. Uh, the shout out to Jerry Weir, who works at Wheaton College with me. Um, he is uh, the director of our international student um, programs office. And uh, seeing his heart for international students from all, all over the world, all over the world and the different experiences they have, has been, it's, it's really beautiful to see to see that and see the impact that that has. And then I also just see this like almost like a face of overwhelming, regardless of like what country you come from, but depending on how, depending on how much time you spent in the U S 
This is not just a brand new campus. This is seeming like a brand new world. It could just be so much. And so I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit about, um, take us into a little bit of the experience of international students that probably is maybe taken for granted or people wouldn't know in ways that you get to minister to them. Yeah, absolutely. This is something I'm extremely passionate about. I absolutely love my job at Moody. I consider it a privilege to be able to oversee the international student office and to support students through one of the most hardest and exciting times of their lives. Um, and so it's complicated. There's there's so much to share. I think a big piece is understanding the immigration process of an international student. So we have over 100 different visa types, and they're divided into two different <laughs> visa categories, non-immigrant visas and immigrant visas. And so immigrants- Did you say are, 100 visa types? Goodness, there's so many. I think there's even more than that. There's so many different visa types. Yeah, so talk about like coming in the right way. It's so complicated. <laughs> and so- the immigrant visa type being someone who wants to come here long-term. So a refugee will become an immigrant because they're coming here long-term. Um, or someone who's um, coming for a green card because they're married, they're going to be here long-term. Whereas a non-immigrant is someone, for example, a B1B2 visa holder who's here for business or to be a tourist. Well, international students fall under that non-immigrant visa type. They're F1 visa holders. Sometimes they can be F2, sometimes they can be J1s. Um, the F2 piece is a spouse or a child of an F1 visa holder. And so I think it's important to note that they're here under a non-immigrant visa type. And that's important because during their visa interview, they have to prove that they're not going to stay in the U.S. long term. Because if you show purpose of living here long term or any intent of, of moving to the United States, then you will get automatically denied. And so we have some students who maybe don't um, interview that well or, or their English is strong enough and they get denied and then they have to reapply. Mm. I think the most I had was five visa interview denials from a student. And then I think on the sixth, he got it. And so we were so excited. Wow. Um, and so in order for them to get the visa, they have to apply for a school. They have to show sufficient funds for one year um, in their bank account. So typically 20 to 25 grand, depending on how much the school costs. Um and then we give them what's called an I-20, which is a certificate of eligibility for non-immigrant student status. Um, and then finally, once they have that, they can um, apply for the student visa after they've paid the CVS fee. So then this process can take about three to five months from the moment they apply, sometimes even longer, um, to the moment that they get their visa. So once they get their visa, they can arrive in the U.S. no earlier than 30 days. Um, and then like you were talking about earlier, Steve, I was just very impressed that you knew that. And it shows that you have a lot of experience with international students. Um, the challenges that they have with being an international student is they have so many immigration policies that they have to follow in order to stay in status. So they can only work 20 hours per week on campus. If they want to work off campus, they have to wait until their second year and it has to be approved and part of their curriculum and it's called CPT. And then they only get one, um, they're only allowed to do that for one year during their undergrad or grad experience or PhD. Um, and then they're able to work one year after they graduate. And so they're just very, very limited to what they can do. And they have to take a full course load. Only one class can be online. They're only allowed to drop down below course level if there's a medical emergency or if they're struggling with the English language on their first semester or if it's their last semester. There's, and there's just so many more policies. So I won't go through all of them for time's sake. Um, and so I have this little this sheet called International Student Life Cycle, which kind of explains the process. Um, and so what the average student, um, you know, an average U.S. citizen or resident student in the U.S., they just apply for a school, make the transcripts, and they're done. I mean, it's more complicated than that. But an international student has to do times that by four. 
And so once they arrive on campus, uh, we understand that they are so jet lagged. Sometimes they're coming and they're studying in their second, third, sometimes fourth language. And they're just honestly some of the most brave and resilient students I've ever met because they're leaving their their culture, you know, they're leaving everything they're familiar to, their roles, their families, their friends, their medical system, their educational system, and they're starting from scratch. And so typically during orientation, we, um, we do several presentations on um, how you can adjust culturally. And so we talk about like honeymoon stage and then culture shock um, and then the adaptation phase and cultural adjustment. I mean, there's so many different moving pieces and, and students will at some point go through the stages where sometimes it's really exciting and sometimes it's really awful. Um, and so what our job is in our office is to support them with their immigration documents, immigration questions, and then to help them with their cultural adjustment. And so we have incredible student groups on campus, ISF, UCAPA, KSF, Puente, um, targeted towards specific countries where we have a lot of students coming from. Um, and we have an incredible staff. We do workshops and sessions, especially during COVID when it was just really hard and students were so isolated or trapped you know, in the U.S., you're not able to visit family or friends or communicate with them. It's just it's so, so challenging. And so now we do a lot of different activities for our students. It's, it's so fun. And I joke, I never have to travel. The world comes to me. And it's just such a privilege to be able to hear, especially at Moody, because we are a school focused on, you know, training future leaders in ministry. It's just my eye, my heart is just so happy to hear of students coming to the U.S., with the purpose of going out and sharing the gospel and furthering the kingdom. It's just, honestly, I think I have the best job in the whole world because I get to see that. And so every week I have um, lunch with an international student and just hear about their, you know, their testimonies, what brought them to Moody and um, what they hope to do post Moody and hear of their challenges um, studying abroad. And and so, yeah, it's a, it's a gift to be able to work there. And um, I can talk about this. I'll go ahead and stop there. But yeah, it's been a really neat experience to be able to work with international students. You know, Steve, after listening to that, I sort of feel like a slouch with my undergrad degree. Like, wow, I didn't have to do anything. I just like yes. showed up and graduated from college. <laughs> like, right, right. And, and, and I was, I was also, I was also reflecting on like when I was in, when I was in college, and the fact that yeah, work with working with college students, there, there's so much going on, including that's not even getting to like the stereotypical fun parts about college that are a you know, probably budgeted more for some than it should be. But in general, that's a lot of stuff to keep up with before you've even gotten to the academic rigor. Seriously. My goodness. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I can do this. Like you are mentioning, like, you can do this if it's your first semester or if it's your last semester. Remembering all those nuances and knowing those details and stuff, man, I that that that, that is a lot. And so I can see why, like, having someone on this end to be able to support you before you even arrive so um, is is crucial. It's crucial. So that, that is a lot. I, I appreciate you giving us just a glimpse into some of those pieces about just starting the process of going to college. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about immigration, uh, talk about your work with international students. This has been a fantastic conversation and Steve and I both thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. For the rest of you, thanks for joining us as well. We uh, hope you enjoyed our time together. We'd love to keep this conversation going. I'd love to hear from you, what you found to be uh, insightful or helpful or useful. You can reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Tesserai Podcast. Oh, shoot. What else do I say? Tesserai Podcast. Um, 
I know. It's been like weeks. <laughs> All right. T- Test Ride Podcast. Um, we've got more great episodes in the hopper and looking forward to sharing them with you soon. This has been Tesserai. Thank you for joining me.